So I guess the topic today is divorce. Uh, I'm not a, I wouldn't consider myself an expert on divorce, but I did go through one and I went through the whole maintenance uh, enforcement program and I got free from it. So I, I you know, I have some knowledge of it, um, probably more than most if this is your first divorce. Um, I will say that um, when, when my divorce happened, um, after we went through the lawyers, I, um, I had to be a self litigant. And um, I went on, a, I went on a, uh, a website and it was called Dad's Divorce. I couldn't find it again, even on Wayback Machine. I think part of the problem was there was a book that was a downloadable book and now it's for sale. So I think they just didn't want to have that website available. But what I can tell you is um, I was already in the divorce for a few months and you know, lost the house and all that. And um, this site said, if you're reading this, um, if you're re reading this site, then this is what just happened to you. And I was just floored because it was exactly what had happened. Like I, I was just shocked. And he said, this is how 95% of the divorces go. And, um, you know, it was things like age, age of my wife, you know, how, how long she had been from the last child, what TV shows she, she was watching, what magazines she was watching and uh, reading. And I was like, I saw those magazines. And um, so that was sort of my first um, introduction to what I would call a conspiracy theory or what they call conspiracy theories. It, it was very clear that, that there is something behind this that was quite nefarious and kind of driving it. It was like an industry. And then as I was in court, um, a, lot of, a lot of things happened. And one thing in particular, I started asking questions because um, the way things were going in there, it wasn't how I thought court was supposed to be based on TV or whatever idea, wherever I had my ideas about court were, um, that's not what was happening in there. They weren't listening really to me and they weren't listening to my wife. It was sort of like they were, you know, okay, can we, can we just get through all this talking because, because we got to get to something. And it was just this um, constant ignoring almost everything and just going through the motions of, of uh, hearing all this nonsense. And um, I couldn't put my finger on it. Like what, what is it you, what's going on in here? And it was a few years later that I, I finally pieced together what I think was going on. And um, so I'll share that. Um, we can, well, with this many people, um, if we can keep the questions to the end, that would probably uh, be helpful. When it was 38, I thought we could kind of, you know, have more of a dialogue, but with 100, it, it's, it, it will get out of control, I think. 
Exactly, and so, I can keep track. Uh, I'll keep track of questions in the chat as chat. well. Okay. So that, uh, and we will open it up for a Q and A after. So Cal was going to take a better part of a couple of hours to go through his story to uh, to work through some of the points that that uh, I had up on the page. Um, just just to remind everybody, you know that that uh, there's predictable stats and the science of this what I called hungry ghost of the family law industry. Um, how we are actually pledging children to the public in the process of working with the court system, how lawyers get away with creating conflict, even when a judge is against it, as you mentioned when we talked, uh, the mindset that you need to navigate with and against lawyers who fuel division and are part of this money-making business, how, how to get lawyers to retreat, uh, why to avoid family court altogether, which is the punchline if there if there is one, unfortunately, for those that are already in there, and uh, and how to best help children regardless of your situation. Yeah, and you know the children are the are the you know in hindsight, I was trying to do what was best for my children, you know, um, with my limited knowledge and limited skill in there, but. Um, I would say you want to stay out of court and because um, it is a business and it's it's money driven, obviously. And um, I'll just show you what I found or what my what I think is really going on in there. And um, I need to share a screen. Um, Beth, if you can do that. Yeah, just made you co-host. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so we're going to get into a little bit of commerce here, so it'll help in other other aspects of your life as well. This is um, this is something that that kind of goes on in behind the scenes. And this is has to do with money, and um, so you'll see why I think what is going on in there is um, is based on this. So this is the uh, Financial Administration Act. It's a you know Government of Canada federal act. I'm not making this up. And uh, this is the definition of money. So money includes negotiable instruments, and that's all it says. Then the next definition, because it's N, happens to be right here, negotiable instrument. And it includes any check, draft, traveler's check, bill of exchange. And this is what I want to focus on. Postal note, money order, postal remittance, and any other similar instruments. So any instruments similar to these, um, it is money by definition. So a negotiable instrument is money and these are negotiable instruments. So a bill of exchange is money. And when you go here, this is the Bills of Exchange Act. So this is what a bill of exchange is. And as I just showed, a bill of exchange is money by definition in, what, in their federal acts. This is also a federal act, just so you know. 
Canada, Government of Canada. And we go here. So this is the definition of a bill of exchange. A bill of exchange is an unconditional order in writing addressed by one person to another, signed by the person giving it, requiring the person to whom it is addressed to pay on demand or at a fixed determinable future time, a sum certain in money to or to the order of a specified person or to bearer. So the piece of paper that has the, these um, things on it is money. And I'll just show you a, I just kind of made this up. This is not an actual um, child support order, but I've seen one, I've, I had one. So you'll see a date, uh, you'll see the um, court of whatever court you're in, and then it'll be a child support order. And then they'll have in the matter of dad versus mom, court hereby orders and order in writing the dad person to whom it is addressed to pay the sum of $1,000 per month to mom to a specified person for the children, Sally age four and Johnny age six until the, till the child reaches the age of 19 years. Sorry to interrupt. Six or determinable future, um, future time. Uh, and then it has to, to be, what's that? Sorry to interrupt, but we're not seeing the screen that you're seeing unless you didn't intend us to. Okay, just hang on. You might have to reshare your desktop. Okay. And that would be... You can start with stop share. Oh, Are you, you seeing go. it now? Yes, yes, perfect, thank you. Okay. So I'll, I'll just go over that again so you can see it. There's a date, um, what the court is, and it's a child support order. In the matter of dad versus mom, the court hereby orders that dad pay the sum of $1,000 per month to mom on the first day of the month for the children, Sally age four, Johnny age six, until the ch children reach the age of 19 years. This is a typical, there's other words in, in these orders, but this is basically what's, um, what it entails. And it falls under this definition of a bill of exchange because it's an unconditional order in writing order and the court orders addressed by one person so it's addressed by judge to um signed by the person giving it they sign it at the bottom requiring the person to whom it is addressed dad to pay dad pay on, de on demand or at a fixed or a determinable future time until the children reach 18, uh, 19 years of age, a sum certain in money, $1,000, to or to the order of a specified person, to mom, and, and bearer, it doesn't really matter. So 
what I'm what I'm getting at is a child support order is a bill of exchange and therefore it is money the actual piece of paper and the court keeps the paper so according to the bills of exchange act um dad or whoever this is um whoever is ordered to can accept this for value and you can write across it accepted for value and um then this piece of paper then can be given to mom but they don't tell you that part and i tried this in court and um the fmep lawyer they brought in a heavyweight uh, lawyer on my last day there and she brought it up in the beginning that i had done this across the across the order or a copy of the order and the judge said i'm not going there so she wasn't going to do it so then later um during that hearing she um she said uh, you know mr washington you've got all this stuff in in this in your file and and we're going to deal with acts only acts and so i said uh, how about the bills of exchange act and then she kind of went back in her in her seat like i swung a bat, uh, bat at her and she she was stalled she started flipping through papers and that's a signal for usually lawyers when they're stuck they'll flip papers and then the judge helps them but the judge was flipping papers at this point and then the lawyer heavyweight lawyer she started flipping through papers so they were both flipping papers telling the other i don't know what to do here and so they stood down so i know i was on to something so this is what's what the court is after these pieces of paper and then they have this thing called fmep and each state and each province has um uh, like an enforcement program for so-called deadbeat dads and there was a a treatise that i that i read i couldn't find it but um because this is all year this is all 20 years ago for me so um a lot of that stuff is 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 gone off the internet etc but in my case my they deemed me to make two thousand dollars a month now, I made a little bit more than that, probably on average, but it was pretty close. My child support payments were $800 a month for five children. And my rent to, in order to have a three-bedroom house was $1,200. So there's nothing left to buy food, pay hydro, pay gas, pay insurance on the car, um, pay gas for the car. And it, you know, it, it became an impossibility. It's, it's a mathematical impossibility. And yet they still um, were very aggressive um, enforcing this on me. So, you know, I got arrested a few times. Um, uh, a SWAT team ended up at my house at one point and beat up my brother by mistake because we have the same description. And almost to death. And uh, so I went through the ringer on this, on this, um, in this situation. This is how I kind of got, got immersed from being just a normal tax paying, you know, owned a house working uh, dad to, um, to what I am right now. And, you know, this is what kind of opened my eyes and, and I saw things differently from that point on. Um, 
So this is what I, I believe is what's going on. And then there's a company called Themis. I'll stop sharing again. Themis. So through all that, I, um, I wrote to the attorney general, that was Wally Opal at the time. And um, this is right after my brother got beat up. And I said, you know, this, this program is out of control. The fact that a judge can send um, unmarked policemen to my house, uh, you know, like soldiers, like they came with no car, they were wearing black, um, all black uh, uniform with the, with the things over their heads and um, no markings. And it was a very aggressive um, tactic. My brother had his, his teeth knocked out, broken sternum, concussions, PTSD, uh, ribs broken. They literally had him, um, one guy was holding him down with his, with his uh, boot on his face and the other guy was kicking him. So this is, this is how aggressive they get. So I wrote to Wally Opal about this event um, and the mail disappeared. So I wrote again, I said, you know, the mail disappeared and there's a 14 year um, jail term for, for tampering with the mails. And then they found the original letter. So Wally Opal wrote back to me and said that he said, I'm the problem, me. That I'm not following court orders even though I, I showed him like it's mathematically impossible for me to, to comply with all of this. Something has to give, like I, I can't have my hydro cut off all the time. Um, you know, I, I ended up driving without insurance because of this, because I couldn't afford uh, to pay everything. And my insurance, my car insurance ran out and um, I had to do a music gig. So I thought, well, I'll just go and do the gig and I'm getting paid in a couple of days. So I'll drive for three or four days without insurance. And I got caught. And um, the officer was a lady officer, RCMP. And she said, you know, why aren't you driving without insurance? And I said, well, like, I don't, I, I can't afford, I'm in, I'm in this um, family maintenance situation and I can't afford it. I have to make my child support payments and therefore I can't pay my, my insurance. And I said, I don't drink. I don't, you know, I don't do drugs. I don't smoke. I don't do, you know, it's not that I don't, that I'm spending my money foolishly. I don't gamble. Um, literally there's not, a, you know, it's mathematically impossible. So she gave me a ticket for 675 bucks or whatever it was. And, um, and I said to her, I said, you know, I know you're just doing your job. But I just explained to you why I couldn't um, pay for my insurance because you asked me. And now you've given me a ticket for $600 that I have to pay before I can get my insurance that I can't afford. I said, you know, you're enforcing unjust laws. And she started to cry. Uh, you know, obviously there was something else going on in her life. And this was probably just a, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. And, and I, when I saw that, I went, wow, even she knows what she's doing is wrong, but she's kind of stuck. And so I, 
I vowed at that point to never buy um, car insurance again. And so I figured out how to um, indemnify myself through a bond. Um, and that's a whole other story. I don't want to get too far off the, the divorce thing. I know you're all here for that. But um, so this all, all led, uh, all led to my journey of, to where I am now. Not that I'm anywhere, but <laughs> it is what it is. And um, so part of my court case, after Wally Opal um, wrote back, he said that, you know, the courts have the authority to make orders and the police have the authority to carry out those orders. And I wrote him back and I said, um, I just went for the jugular and I said, where does the court get the authority from? Nobody asked that question. These are the kind of questions I was asking in court, like, who are you that you're telling me that I have to do this or have to do that to the judges? And one judge, you know, uh, encouraged me. She said, Mr. Washington, you seem sophisticated. You need to keep going. And I didn't know what, even know what that meant. So it was these little things that kind of spurred me on. So Wally Opal didn't write back. Um, there was silence for a couple months. And then a man named Chris Beresford wrote back. And he's the head of FMEP. He's not voted in. He's just a one of these guys that's just there in Victoria, um, the part of the government. He wrote back and said that the, the courts get the authority from the Constitution Act, which I know doesn't exist. He also told me that um, Family Maintenance Enforcement is actually a company called Themis. And so I looked that up and um, it turns out that it's, it's owned by another company um, that is North America wide that does all these family maintenance enforcement um, programs under different names. And this is where you start to see that there's an or it's very organized what's happening. And it's bigger than what people think just in their local state or province. Um, there's it's a definite industry. The lawyers are involved in on, in it. Um, my lawyers. Like when I first got a divorce, I didn't know anything. And uh, so first thing you do is you, you call a divorce lawyer. And um, what I found in hindsight was that they just escalated an already emotional, you're already in an emotional um, turmoil and they escalate it. They just, they literally push on that, on that button and get the thing to, to, um, to go really out of control so that it becomes like a war. And it becomes um, not about the children, not even about you know, each um, person in the divorce. It just becomes this war. And like, I, you, know, you wanna beat the other person or their lawyer or whatever it is, but it's like a team, a lawyer and a, and a, a mom and a lawyer and a dad. And the lawyers, in, in my case, um, colluded. So we had, a, we had an order to sell the house. It sold, um, it listed at 10 o'clock in the evening and it sold by noon the next day because it was so low. Um, you know, it went on way below market value. And um, so the house was gone and I had to go out of town for work. And I told my lawyer, I said, I want the 
proceeds from the house to go with the realtor's lawyer, there was a realtor involved, into their trust um, account, not with you and not with um, my wife's lawyer. When I came back, they had put the money with my lawyer and they, 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 they thought I would be okay with that because it's not with my lawyer, but I was not okay with it. And that told me that the lawyers got together because they were, um, there's no other way that for this to have actually happened. Um, there's no way the other side's lawyer is going to allow it to be with, with one, of the, one of the lawyers unless they're in on something. So once the house was sold and the, um, all the subjects, et cetera, were removed, um, both of our lawyers dropped us. They got whatever they could out of the, you know, all the money that was available, which was in the house. Now, I was current with my lawyer um, with payments. I paid him in cash. Every time he had a bill, I paid him within, you know, a couple of days. And, um, but he, he was adamant about me signing off on the house. And he was getting very angry and very aggressive. And uh, I said, no, I don't want to sign it. I'm, you know, I'll pay you as, I, as I've always paid you never been behind and so again that told me that he was colluding with the um with the opposing lawyer so i threatened him i said you know i gave you specific instructions on this and i was very clear about it that it was not supposed to go with you or her but with the realtor's lawyer um trust account and i said i'm i'm you know i can I said, you've really crossed the line here and I can take you to the law society. And he, he instantly, oh, okay, okay. How about if we split the, the amount? So we ended up splitting the amount that he got. He got half and the other lawyer got half. And, um, and then I got, I split his amount with him. So what I'm trying to tell you is even though you're emotionally charged and, and there's no way not to be, it's really difficult not to be, because it's uh, um, it's a it's a breakdown of a kind of a kind of a sacred um, bond, but the government doesn't look at it that way. They look at it like two corporations that are splitting, and then they just try and get as much as they can out of it. So the lawyers um, work their end of it, you know, through fees, etc., and then the court um, is waiting for that child support order, and that child support order is money. And the amount of money that's um, driven by that is in the probably in the trillions, like North America wide or worldwide, if you want to put it that way. It is definitely an industry, and they're not talking about the child support orders as money. Nobody considers that. Nobody even thinks about it. But I discovered it because I started learning commerce after the fact, and then I went, ah, oh, now I get what was what I was seeing in there. I couldn't quite put my finger on it is they were waiting for all the talking to stop so they get to that child support order. And then they just don't care after that, really. So this um, Beresford guy, uh, let me see if I can. How do I get to my browser? Uh, you might want to exit out of full screen if that's what's happening at the top of your Zoom. There will okay. be, when you hover over it, it'll 
give you uh, a yeah. drop down. Okay. Yeah. So this, I guess. So this is Chris Beresford. Are you seeing this? No, we're not. Okay. Just need to share your screen. And by the way, everyone wants to know about how you uh, indemnified yourself with a bond. <laughs> we can save that to after. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so here. Share screen. So now are you seeing it? Yes, we are. Okay. So this is Chris Beresford. Now he's the guy that answered on behalf of the Honorable Wally Opal. And I, um, I, I'd never seen this man, you know, actually until just recently. So I didn't know what he looked like. So I actually subpoenaed him to come to my court case. He lives in Victoria, uh, which is for those that don't know, it's, we have an Island, um, off of the coast of British Columbia and, and Victoria, that's where the um, our capital is. So that's where the the legislature is. So he lives in that city, and I I had my uh, I have a sister that lives over there, and so I had my brother in law go and um, serve him uh, the subpoena, and I got the okay from the, the judge to subpoena uh, previous to that, and. Um, he went to this man's house and knocked on the door and said, you're served. And, and this man saw my name on the front of it. And um, his wife was hysterical. And um, he actually, this is you know, what my brother-in-law said. He said, um, Chris Beresford pushed his wife into the house behind him and closed the door. So he's standing on the, on the front steps. And said, do you know Cal Washington? And, and my brother-in-law said, I'm just here to serve. Like he wasn't giving them any information. Can you get a message to him? I'm just here to serve this. And um, he said, you know, there's, there's other ways, ways he can do about this. You know, go about this. And he said, I'm just here to serve this and, and, and left. So this guy was um, feeling very uncomfortable with, with what I was doing. And um, of course, they squashed my subpoenas the next time I was in court. And uh, so I served him, Wally Opal, the attorney general, and the head of vital statistics, um, which had to do with the birth certificates of myself and my, and my children. And um, so this website here talks about, um, it's pretty scathing, so you know um, I'm not sure I agree with all this, but it's um, it starts to show some of the um, the tactics of what's of what goes on in this in this industry, and um, starts talking about the judges, and it gets into the Picton Farm and the um, waterworks scandal, where a bunch of um, over this scandal five or six judges ended up dying, like um, um, suddenly dying now, that's the new uh, new words out there. So 
Um, I don't want to go, go too far into this, but uh, it's, it's worth reading. Some of this um, coincides with the time that I was doing this. Like it goes back into, um, you know, into the early 2000s. And, um, and it's, you know, it's, it shows all the judges that died suddenly, et cetera, mysteriously. So where I live, it, you know, um, there is a, um, it's very, very corrupt here, but I don't think it's out of the norm. I think this corruption is everywhere. And this divorce industry um, is just rampant everywhere. And then it starts to um, devolve into um, children being taken into the into custody by the government, and then um, some of those children um, disappear, like gone. So this is what you're kind of dealing with, and um, and this well, this is what I I went through. So. Um, I did get free of it um, because I was doing um, <clears throat> commercial moves and common law moves, and they really didn't know what to do with me. So um, at this point, they, they, you know, at that point, they left me alone. They left me alone for um, well over ten years, close to fifteen years now, where I'm just I'm not dragged back into court ever. So what I'm what I'm trying to get at is if you're in in a divorce, um, and it's and you can't work things out, you know it's best to work things out if you can. And if you can't, then don't go into this court system. It is completely corrupt, and you're going to lose everything, both of you. So. It's just not worth it, just, you know, talking uh, financially, plus the month, the extra um, emotional, um, they drive that emotion and get that, um, that fight or flight kind of thing going in you and you, and you just want to, um, you just want to destroy the other person and it, it destroys yourself and it definitely destroys your children. It's just not worth it. No matter what the other person you think they've done, try and um, deal with things out of court. And there's, there's um, plenty of ways to do that. So here in British Columbia, they have, um, when you go through a divorce, similar to um, small claims, you have to go through a mediation pro, um, um, program or session to try and get things done before it gets too adversarial. But when you have lawyers involved, they just um, fuel that um, animosity. You know, I remember going back to my lawyer, he called me up a few, you know, a few years afterwards and said, you know, come and get your file. We're not going to, or we're just going to destroy it. So I thought, well, I'll just go and get it just in case I need it for something. And, uh, you know, I walked into his office and there was a, a woman there, you know, crying, you know, just bawling her eyes out and he's handing her tissues and, and his face was just kind of cold, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I was literally, I got, you know, I felt nauseous. I didn't, 
I didn't um, vomit or anything, but I felt that nauseous feeling like this is just evil. And he looked at me and I looked at him and we both knew. I didn't even have to say a word to him. I was, I showed my disdain and he showed his, I don't give a crap um, attitude. This is what I do for a living kind of thing. And um, it's very parasitical. And, you know, that poor woman, whatever she's going through, you know, obviously a, uh, a divorce, because that's what he is, a divorce lawyer. And he's just egging that on so that he can have the most um, adversarial situation that he can, because that's how he's going to make more money. And, and um, my sister went through a divorce and, um, and, and um, her husband it was a wealthy and like wealthy family. And um, the, the amount that they paid in lawyer, in law, in, in legal fees went well over a million dollars, well over. And it's just, and half of the, more than half, more than half of the arguments were ridiculous. And so, but when somebody makes a claim, then you've got to go and fight it. And that's what, what ends up happening. And, and both the lawyers get paid, even though it was one lawyer that was doing most of that, the other one got paid just because he has to fight it. And the whole time he's going, oh, this is so wrong. This is so wrong. But then his bank account goes up by 20,000. 30,000, 50,000. And, um, and so he's not really vested in trying to, you know, stop this, this ridiculous situation and the court doesn't care. So this is what ends up happening. If you let the, let that system take control of your, um, of your marital split up. And I think this is, a. Um, this was in uh, just a magazine and they're obviously selling something, but it, it, and I don't know these people, but I guess it was a high profile um, divorce. And this is typical. This is what happened with my sister. So, you know, it's, you got an heiress and um, the head of the um, Toronto symphony went through a bad divorce. And again, Accusations of remorseless cruelty, heavy boozing and rage, anger management issues being lobbied back and forth by both parties. And none of them were proven in court. But you had to go through the battle. And guess what? The lawyers got paid. No doubt a massive lawyer's bills being tallied up on both sides of the, of the, of the fractious division too. And later on, it gives Marital fallout, of course, is always um, has a high, um, a price tag to it. So there is going to be some cost, no matter what happens. Um, if you're going to divorce, there is going to be some cost. But an uncontested divorce generally comes in around a thousand dollars, and you can actually do it cheaper. Um, but as soon as it starts to be contested or the the fight starts, now you start to get into these ranges of what a divorce can cost. And for some, that's um, 
out of reach. But once you're in it, like I said, we were, we were in that type of a thing, but we didn't have that kind of money. I was paying my bills, but I don't think my wife was. And um, so they, you know, they colluded to get the house sold. And then they both basically fired us. Even the order, normally when there's an order from a judge, like to sell the house, um, that's verbally over the bench. And then one of the lawyers writes up the order and then the judge signs it. Well, that was never written. Because both lawyers were like, well, I got what I want. I don't care what happens to these people. Like, just don't, they just do not care. And the whole time they'll be, you know, hugging you and putting you on the back. And my lawyer was even swearing at, at my wife, calling her all kinds of names. And I, I was wondering, like, I had to ask him, I said, who are you talking about? I thought maybe it's, is it the lawyer or is it my wife? Well, your wife. And I'm like, I don't talk to about her like that. But he was because he was trying to um, egg me on to, to this, you know, to fight. And um, so this is, these are some of the things that, you know, that I've come across with, with divorces and you want to stay out of there. So so this is Family Maintenance Enforcement Corruption in Canada. Again, Maximus, and this is Themis that the Beresford told me in, in his letter that Themis is actually FMEP or FMEP is actually Themis. And, um, and so and now Maximus owns all this. And so they're running all of this um, child support deadbeat dad idea thing. And, um, but I think that the um, court orders for child support becoming money is funneled into this. That's what I think is going on. So the court is actually um, selling those things um, at, a, at a discount or whatever, and Maximus takes them and then they get favor in court. And they do get favor in there. I've not, you know, other than CRA, which is our IRS for those that are in the United States, um, the IRS or the CRA definitely gets favor in there and they are, are notorious cheaters. Like all their procedures are, are wrong. Their warrants are not signed. Um, and some of them are, are signed by retired judges. All, we saw so much of that kind of corruption. Like CRA is just totally criminal. These guys at least followed procedure, but they did get favor in there. But in my case, the judge was so frustrated um, that he told her to be quiet, the FMEP lawyer. She was just going on and on. He stuck his hand out and said, be quiet. And then he looked at me and he goes, those people are collectors like any other collector. And I knew what that meant. They have no standing. So they're collecting a debt that's not theirs. They're not a party to the contract. So they're just like a, any other collector, like a, a credit card collector or a um, you know, any of these kind of things. And then she started in again, and he again said, be quiet. And then he turned to me and he says, and you, and then he, he tied into me. I can't remember what he said. Um, you're not doing things and you've got a bunch of paper in here, but you're not doing things. And this is a business and you need to actually do something. And I'm like, again, why are you telling me this? So, um, 
because I had a, quite a few financial instruments in there, but I wasn't putting them forward or, or, or I just kind of, um, my tactic, I had nine, nine things that I was going to do in order. And so I had them all in the file. So if that one failed, I would go to the next one. Um, the last one that I was going to do, just so you understand how bad this bills of exchange thing is, the very last thing that I was going to do, um, but didn't get to because I, I got free of it, was this. So you understand how corrupt this whole system is. So remember I said that a bill of exchange is money. Well, here in section 30 of the Bills of Exchange Act, where a simple signature on a blank paper, only a signature on there, is delivered by the signer in order that it may be converted into a bill, a bill of exchange, which is money, it operates in the absence of evidence to contrary as an authority to fill it up as a complete bill for any amount using the signature for that of the drawer, acceptor, or endorser. And those are all, um, so the drawer is the person who actually writes a check. If you, if you understand how checks work, you write the check, the acceptor is the one um, that you give the check to, and the endorser is somebody who signs it on the back. So we all were doing these things, we just didn't understand what, what it was we were doing. And now they've, they've trained us away from all that and everything's automated so we don't, you won't catch it as quick. But for those that are of a certain age and use checks and um, you'll, you'll, you'll see that you've done this kind of thing before, but you didn't understand what it was. So anyway, and in like matter, when the bill is wanting in any material particular, the person in possession of it has in the absence of evidence to the contrary. So this absence of evidence to the contrary means you have to write across it non-negotiable. The authority to fill it up, the omission in any way he sees fit. So this is how bad this system is. A blank piece of paper with your signature on it can be turned into money by somebody writing after the fact. And so the, like I said, the, the child support orders are fit the definition because they actually make sure that they've got all the pieces in there. But a simple signature on a blank piece of paper can be delivered as money. And this, is, this was number nine on my list of nine that I was gonna do. I was going to sign a blank piece of paper in open court, hand it to the clerk and say, I'm done. Fill it out, whatever, whatever you want for any amount, and we're done. But I never got that far. Um, so the children... I was... I was my parents divorced... And, um, and then I went through a divorce. My children of that, of that marriage are now adults, young adults, but um, I, I, I had a meeting with them because two of them ended up living with me um, early on, like in their teenage years and through high school. And the three didn't. And so the three that didn't, um, we kind of fell out of, I wouldn't say we were, you know, not, I wasn't seeing them, but um, because two lived with me, I, I spent a lot of time with them because they were in my house. So the other three, our relationship kind of 
um, dwindled, not to nothing, uh, don't, don't get me wrong, but there wasn't that closeness that I had with the two. And um, so I tried to rectify that and I'm still working on that um, as, the, as adults and we wanted to talk about it. But I found that my children really didn't want to talk about what happened, even though that's the best way to heal something is to talk it out. And so the, they are emotionally scarred by this. And we all were. And um, so divorce is not something to head into light, lightly. Not that anybody's thinking that way, but um, there's a lot of consequences and a lot of fallout, um, even generationally, that you've got to think about and try to mitigate that. If you can have an amicable um, split, if you have to split, that is way better for everybody, everybody. And um, it's not about winning or beating the other person or trying to destroy them. Even if they've, you know, been, <clears throat> you know, abuse, I'm not, I'm not condoning abuse, but even if they've been unreasonable or hard to get along with, it's best for everybody concerned to, um, and I'm going by hindsight because I went through it the other way not because I wanted that, but um, it just went that way. Um, but in hindsight, um, it's best to try and, and work things out yourself. And there's, then there's um, no, no legal reason why you can't. There's plenty of websites that offer um, separation agreements for free and like templates. There are other websites that offer help with that at a, you know, at a cost, a few hundred dollars. Um, there are mediating lawyers and there are arbitrating lawyers. And um, if you can find a good one that, that's, you know, wants to work both sides, that's the best thing that you can, that you can have. You know, be careful even with a mediating lawyer because they, you know, they get paid by the, by the hour. So um, the longer it goes, the more money they make. So if you can do a lot of it yourself, you can get, you know, you can get any agreement notarized and, um, you know, to finalize the divorce, you have to get it into a court. But if you, if you have the um, agreement already signed by both parties and notarized, the court literally just stamps it and, and your, you know, your divorce is final. So, um, not sure what else I had to show you. Yeah, there are certainly lots of questions coming up. So I don't know okay. if you want to start turning towards some of those. Sure. Um, the, the hot one really was uh, uh, about how you created a bond to indemnify yourself. The nitty gritty ins and out details of that. I think people would be very <laughs> curious about. Yeah, that's, I, I can give you the overview. Um, I can't get into nitty gritty because it's, um, it's a bit, um, a bit detailed, but through the birth certificate, I, I should start with the birth certificate too. Yes. Um, so we, um, I'm still sharing, aren't I? 
Uh, no, you're not. No, I'm not. Okay. Let me go here. So we, we're taught that we have to register our children when they're born, and we don't think about what that is. Some of you are somewhat aware of it now. But when, um, when I had children, we just did it and didn't, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about anything. So um, it, um, I just want to show you something about registering. Again, this goes past um, a divorce and goes into um, what's happening. This is it here. So this is a Latin to English translator. So the word register, the the root Latin word is regi. And when you translate it, it's king. So words are really important. So when you register anything, the king is somehow involved. Put it that way. So we register our children. We register our cars. We register our homes. We register our children at school. We register, register, register. And you're giving up um, title in most cases. Um, like um, to, to the thing that you're registering. So this is the, another trick that they've got. So they want you to register a lot of things. So that, that is what happens in your, to, your, to your children. When you, when you register them, they become, um, you kind of pledge them to the government based on an ancient thing of pledging. And a lot of this goes way back into the Middle Ages, like during the Black Plague, when there was lots of um, orphans because of all the people that were dying. Um, they were, they were uh, sent to work camps and they had to work uh, in order to kind of live. And um, this was all through pledging and even abandonment going into um, admiralty law. So the birth certificate, is um, a thing where you have pledged your children to the government. And um, so when you come to a, a divorce, another thing you should understand is when you got married and, and, and we've all been to lots of weddings and um, you know, it's a very beautiful ceremony and you know, it's all really nice. And you know, they're all similar in, in what happens. And there's one event in every marriage that doesn't fit. It's like a, <clears throat> it's kind of like a book. And that is when they sign the marriage license. It doesn't fit. It's always awkward. Nobody knows what to do. You're sitting there and these people are signing and it doesn't fit with the whole ceremony. And next time you go to a wedding, you'll see it's like, oh. Now that, event because there's a logo on there and usually your state or your province written on there that is a three-way 
contract between uh, the government as a corporation, the wife as a corporation, because of this birth certificate thing, and the husband as a corporation. Then you register your children, they become little corporations inside that agreement. That's what's going on. Uh, and so a div divorce to them, not to, to you people, to, to you people, it's, it's a breakdown of a relationship that lasted for X amount of time. And um, to them, it's corporations breaking down and that's how they treat it. They don't care. Um, and they try and make money off of it. So it's an industry. So they, it, there's fuel behind this. There are TV programs, magazines, et cetera, that um, drive this thing. So um, that said, the birth certificate um, creates a trust that they can access. And there's lots of people teaching on trusts and there's lots of theories on who's the beneficiary and who's the trustee and all that stuff. And I studied it, you know, off and on for years. And, and some guys have uh, just kept driving at this thing for decades, uh, literally, and they, and they still get nowhere. It's, it's, um, that's my the theory is because it's a fraud. And therefore, they just keep changing the goalposts and you'll never get to the bottom of it as far as exactly how this thing works. That's just my theory on it because it's a, it's a, it's kind of a criminal event. That said, I, what I, what I did was send my birth certificate to the U S treasury. I'm Canadian. I'm, I'm actually dual, but it, it works for Canadians too, because all the birth certificates are, there's theories on where they are. Uh, the most, likely thing is, is they're at the DTC in um, New York. So I send my birth certificate to the US Treasury. Um, there's some writing that goes on there and that's where we're getting into details. And you send a, a cover letter and, um, and a first bond, which for lack of a better way to describe it, it opens an account, like, almost like a bank account. It's not a bank account though. So don't think of it that way, but it's it kind of like that. This is me in hindsight, because I just went through the process and we were all very nervous and all that, but we went through it. But when I saw it in hindsight, uh, when I got the reactions I got, I went, okay, what's happening? So this is what I, this is my take on it. You kind of open an, an account and then you tell the treasury, you can use these bonds for any, anything you want to do with them. So the treasury can um, um, issue their own bonds based on it, or they can put it into the, into the stock market or whatever they want to do. And the bond is an indemnity bond for a court case or something like that. That's how I used it. I didn't try and buy a car or a house or any of that kind of stuff just try and get that out of your head. And um, so I would indemnify the, the court case. So the court cases are indemnified already through risk management and each of the participants have their own bonds in that are participating in this because to deal in commerce, you have to have in, indemnification like um, insurance. 
So they 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 go through a kind of a statutory or a normal um, bonding process, and there's there's um, underwriters that will bond judges and police officers and um, court clerks, all that stuff in case they make a mistake and cause somebody some harm. Same thing with doctors, etc. And this is normal in in all commerce going way back in time. And you know when you understand the history, you can kind of get a better perspective on what's going on here. So I would write a bond to the treasury and I would keep a copy of that bond. I would, I would, tell, the, I would tell the treasury, if you don't agree with this, send it back within seven days. And so I would always do things ahead of time so that I had, you know, and I would usually give them 14. Um, and then once, uh, once that cured, I would give a copy of the bond to the court. So they don't get the original. The original is at the treasury, but I would give them notice and I don't have to, but it, it worked up my advantage to do so. So then I would take the copy of the bond and I would tell the, the court clerk, I want this in the file. Even if it wasn't my case, I want to put it in, you know, blah, blah, blah's file. And at first they were taking those, but as, as you know, the kerfuffles, started they stopped taking them or wouldn't let me put them in the in the file um, but even then i know they got them there was one fellow i helped uh, when i got out of jail i, uh, I started helping my uh, cellmate with his cases he had two cases running and i, I bonded both of them one in supreme court and one in uh, provincial court and i went to the supreme court that was his first appearance for for me he he had appeared many times on it and um so i went there the day before to give notice that i was going to bond that this case and she goes no we're not, we're not supposed to accept those i said well i don't have to have this in the case like it's it's already done this is just a copy and i said the ju judge is going to want to know that that this has happened so it's in your best interest to to take this and put it in the file so the judge understands that somebody has done something. Well, give me, let me, let me go talk to somebody. So she was gone for about 20 minutes, came back with a piece of paper. No, we're not taking it. I said, fine, that's fine. Went in the next day, came up the stairs and some guy comes running up to me and goes, are you here on the, I won't say his name, but are you here on that case? And I'm like, I don't wanna answer questions. I don't know who he is. And, um, I said, well, I'm here to help. So, I, you know, I'm vague answer. Well, are you here? Are you, are you gonna, gonna be representing him? I said, I'm here to help. And uh, he goes, you know, that stuff you came in here with yesterday, that's all bunk, you know, and the storm's off. So that told me that he knows about it. And apparently they weren't taking this thing, right? So, and I don't even know who he is. So I go into the, you know, they open the doors for the court. I go in there, I sit in the back. And then they bring my friend in. And first thing out of the judge's mouth, now she's already heard this case maybe 10 times, you know, because that's just how they do things. It's always adjourning. And she comes in and goes, I have to recuse myself of this case because my husband is partners with the defendant's lawyer. Now she knew this months before, had already, you know, participated in this case and all of a sudden I can't be on this case 
Oh, so you didn't take the piece of paper. Is that, is that what you're saying, Madam Clerk? Uh, why is she stepping down? And um, so another judge comes in and he is mad coming in. He's like raging. His face is full red, full of blood, red, just veins popping. Like he's just, oh, as he comes in. And um, he quickly adjourns the case and he's just mad that he had to even be, be on it. He could just tell, I, I don't wanna be here. And I'm choked that I have to. And he didn't really do anything except adjourn it. So then later on that, that evening, my friend calls me out of jail. I can't call in, but he calls me up. He goes, man, that was weird today. You know, the judge jumping down and um, he says, you know, that guy that was sitting in the front, because the guy came up to me at the, at the stop top of the stairs. When I went into the courtroom, he was sitting in the galley at the front, but not in the, not past the, uh, past the, the gate, like going into, you know, he was just sitting in the front in the, in the witness gap, in the, you know, the gallery of the of people just watching. I saw him up there. I could see him. And um, he goes, you know, that guy that was sitting in the front. And I said, yeah, he says, that was my lawyer. He, he quit today. So this is what I saw with bonds. Um, and there's, I got many, many stories, but that's the bottom line. Um, it's, it was done through the U.S. Treasury based on my birth certificate and the value of that. And then you, um, you keep writing bonds to sort of charge up your account. And then you, you write bonds from time to time or even promissory notes if you wanna have them backed by bonds. Um, and that's how that works. Okay, very good. Thank you for that. <clears throat> And uh, so would you like me to just go ahead and start asking some of the questions that showed up in the chat? Okay, sure. perfect. perfect. Uh, so and this one's uh, for me going back when you're talking about the subpoenas that your brother-in-law was serving. Um, and maybe you, I, I think you in fact already answered it was about the birth certificate. So that, yeah, you just talked about all that, that's fine. Um, Someone was asking about the commercial and common law moves uh, where you're not dragged into court, back into court. Do you want to, um, is there any details about those moves that you could share? Yeah, well, commercial moves are bonding the case. So that indemnifies me in case I make a, a screw up or anybody makes a screw up, then um, um, those that are harmed by that screw up can recoup from the bond at the treasury. The theory being that the treasury will then um, go to the bonds of the or the bond holders of the of the person that caused the problem, and um, and recoup the money because they've already put their that the original bond into the market and they you know you can't just pull stuff out like that, so they will recoup, and then if your bond doesn't cover it, then they will go to your personal assets, and that was the the threat for lack of a better word that the judges didn't like um, because as you can see by the bills of exchange act section 30 where a blank piece of paper can write in any amount so um i wrote in large amounts until my pen ran out of ink and um so i was out bonding them like way out bonding them. wasn't even close and so when you see a $300 million bond come in, 
and you don't have those assets or your bond or your bonding agent is only covering you for so so much like maybe 2 million or something or 3 million um there's a disparity in um who's who's indemnifying this case and uh another thing that happened on the same case on the same same guy but in the provincial court i showed up at court one time i was working in the morning and i showed up in the afternoon i thought well maybe they'll call this case in the afternoon so i just i was in the area so i dropped in again duty lawyer comes running up to me and um says where were you this morning and i'm like again I, you know i don't want to answer your questions like why are you asking me that i don't I, like i'm not obligated to be here I said, well, I don't have to tell you where I was this morning. He says, well, we couldn't call the case unless you were here. And I, and I went, what? In my head, I'm like, that's just strange. So these are the types of things that really encouraged me to, to understand more about what I was doing because I was just doing stuff. And then, see, and then the reactions um, told me that, okay, this is there's something going on here. Do more of that and find out what, the mechanism is behind it and it's my theory that it's the birth certificate and that trust and i don't have to figure out who's the grantor or who's the trustee or who's the blah you know i don't have to figure out any of that stuff because the treasury knows all that and um all i have to do is is put my signature on a, basically on a blank piece of paper although i didn't do that i had put other words in there and um it becomes money Oh, interesting. And somebody just asked, is there an underwriter to those bonds or who is underwriting the bonds? In, in the statutory world, there is, um, there are actual underwriters, like um, they would be members of Lloyd's of London, like insurance companies, and they, they do bonding. So anybody that's been bonded, um, there's, there's some kind of insurance company that's um, bonding you so that you don't cause any trouble or steal something. So um, when I worked at a grocery store, Canada Safeway, I remember, you know, I was just a high school kid, but um, we had to be bonded there because you're, you have access to this, to the store and we didn't have keys or anything, but um, we had keys to certain things. We didn't have keys to the store, but we still had access to, you know, back rooms and you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, as clerks. And so you had to be bonded and I can remember signing something and, you know, I was bonded. So basically I was insured. What, what I found here where I live, and it may be different elsewhere, but I think probably across, at least across Canada, because I'm not sure if he's here, but there was somebody in Alberta who followed what I said and found it. At City Hall in Vancouver, I was told that risk management was at City Hall. And I was skeptical. And, um, you know, it didn't make any sense. It's like, well, what does the city of Vancouver, City Hall have to do with, you know, people in Victoria or, you know, people in the court and all that? So I was like, oh, okay. Well, so we, I went up there. I was helping a guy with, this, with a tax case. And we went up there and it was in an annex. It wasn't in city hall proper. It was um, like a block, about a block away in a in a building on the second or third floor. So you told me where it was, and I went up there, and it, it was an older building. 
with the um, metal in the glass and everything. So there was a glass door, not fully glass, just a wooden door with a piece of uh, glass in it with the metal in it, metal screening. So uh, I know that's like, you know, 60s, seven, maybe 70s vintage. It's an older building. It felt like I was in a, in a Dick Tracy movie or something. It was just, you know, kind of narrow hallway. It was, you know, it had that old feeling about it. I saw a risk manager on the door and there was a buzzer to get in. And there was just one lady in there and, um, and nothing else. Like it was pretty much an empty room. There were bookshelves with, you know, the odd book here and there, but it was like an empty place and just her in there. And um, so I, you know, I looked and I went, no, oh, this is all wrong. Cause I was pretty skeptical. So I, I went, we went back in the elevator Literally, I went, no, nah, this is, can't be. Got in the elevator, and as we're going down, I got a check in my in my spirit to go, no, that's it. Okay, so I pushed the up button, went back up there, buzzed the door. We walk in, and she goes, are you in the right place? Because, and the way she said it was like, I don't think anybody ever went in there. And um, I said, she goes, legal's down the hall. And I said, no, we want risk management. She goes, well, what do you, what do you want to do? Again, like she didn't know what her job was. And there's a telephone on the desk and, and a date stamp. And I saw the date stamp. I recognize it because it's post office, similar to a post office. And uh, well, I said, I want these documents stamped. And she's like, uh, I, I don't know. So she made a phone call and um, The person on the other side of the phone said, well, I'm guessing what they said because she just asked me, but um, is it a claim? And I said, it's a potential claim. So the other person said, sign it because she said, okay, I'll, I'll stamp it. So I we got it stamped. We had two copies and I, I said, this is your copy. She goes, what do I do with it? I said, I don't know, but it's your copy. Like, I don't know what you do in here. Like she had no clue. And um, so we faxed that. It was on the front of this document that had to do with taxes and we sent it to the um, BC legislature and we faxed to the um, finance minister. And then we mailed it. So we, we went to the mail thing first because it was closing at around five. This is in the afternoon and we wanted to get the mail out. So, and then we went and faxed. At, so it was after hours, probably about seven o'clock by the time we faxed. Next morning, I get a call from a friend. It's about nine o'clock in the morning. And he, he goes, hey, Cal, how's it going? Oh, good. Um, do you have anything to do with Kevin Falcon? I said, well, I faxed him something last night. He goes, well, he stepped down this morning. And so by the end of the week, 16, we're not seeking re-election. So the document got around. And that kind of confirmed to me, okay, that is risk management because these people aren't aren't dumb most of them are lawyers and if they're, if they're not they have access to lawyers and they would have just ignored it if it wasn't another thing that happened is right after that is the notaries all got sent a notice saying not to sign any more quasi-legal documents and they had definitions of what that was and they moved risk management from that little office back into um into the main city hall building so whatever it was, 
that's where I believe risk management was for, you know, Canadians. And then somebody in Alberta went to his um, city hall. And again, it was in an annex. He said it was about a block away. He went up there, but it was closed because of COVID. But again, this hiding it in plain view. And then in Surrey, which is a suburb of, of where I live, I'd been there many times um, to city hall for um, getting building permits and that kind of thing, because I was in construction for many years. So I, I walked by this little portable building in the parking lot dozens of times, never paid attention to it because I was always going into, into the main building. After this event, you know, I'm going out to the parking lot and I see this building and it's risk management. Again, outside of the building, I went, that's obviously the MO. So that's where risk management is for Canadians. Um, for Americans, um, I'm not sure if that would be the case that it's at City Hall, but a lot of times I think in the United, United States, it's a little more, um, they're a little more open with who's indemnifying. So again, it, it, it's usually called risk management for those looking for um, who's bonding. Very good to know. That's awesome. Thanks. Uh, someone had a question that's not related to divorce at all, but because it was called family law, they were, um, it was a question about gaining access to records of a case investigated by, now this is in the U.S., elderly protective services. So is there anything that you can share that is um, applicable across the board that, I don't know if Janet, if you can unmute or, or you're able to do that or say more in the chat, because I wasn't able to write the whole thing that you that you wrote down. But to where you're struggling, say, say siblings want uh, the mother to go into a home and then there's somebody else that, you know, doesn't want to put the mom in jail or. I, I can unmute and I'll make it really quick. Thank you. Thanks, Cal. Mm -hmm. Just real quick. Um, I was my mom's caregiver. One of my sisters is nuts. Everybody knows it. I cared for my mom well. Many people have seen that, witnessed it, but my sister reported me to the elderly protective services in the state of Louisiana. They then called my mom. My mom was shocked. She denied that she was being abused. I called them and said, what do I do to clear myself? They asked me these questions. I said, I can give you affidavits to my character. I can give you affidavits to my sister who reported. I can give affidavits to her character. Well, we never heard anything again. Months later, I called back and I, I just wasn't getting anything from them until I talked to someone in Baton Rouge, the state capital, and said a little bit about it. And she said, oh, that case has been closed. And I said, how do I get a copy of that? And she said, you need to write a letter to a certain person, which I did, but what I got back was, um, I was not privy to that information. So I still, for future reference, I'm wondering if you have any idea how I might get access to those records. Well, go through um, freedom of information um, thing first you're probably not going to get anything from that and then do um, a formal demand based on a claim so if you have the right to have that information and you can show that and what that does um, the strongest word in law is claim believe it or not and that that should be eye-opening for many <laughs> because a lot of what goes on is based on claims and until a higher claim comes, it stands. So that's just how that works. 
So if you have a, a right to, to have that information, it sounds like you do because you were a part of it, um, then, then you do a, a demand. So I have, I have the right and I formally demand uh, this. What happens, um, what we've been trained to do, I wanted to, you know, again, this is general information. We've been trained to ask for stuff. And um, as soon as you ask, the answer can be no, if you just thought about it logically. Because you're asking, well, the answer is no. When you demand, it's not about asking, it's a demand. There is no choice to, to, um, to say no. They have to actually follow through with it, especially if it's a, a demand based on a, a claim of right. Great, thank you. Um, real quick, does it matter or anything that I've declared myself as a union citizen or, or do I just in the letter sign it as the living woman? Um, I, I don't know the whole situation there, but um, if you feel that you're gonna be compromised by being a, a, a state, like a US citizen, then, then do it as a, um, a, you know, a living, living woman. But if you have less of that stuff, and I, and I say that, I just said it. <laughs> um, there's a lot of what I call patriot lore out there, and you can get painted with a brush if you kind of do those types of things. Sure. So only do it if it's absolutely necessary for you to stay as a woman and, you, and you're trying to get away from any assumptions. But in this case, you're probably okay just that you know do it normally, but you would be the best judge of that. Awesome, thank you. But, Thanks, Cal. Thanks, Beth. Yeah, because uh, you uh, like a Fourteenth Amendment citizen has rights, so you know just, and that's that's about as low as you can get as an American. Okay, very good. Uh, do, do you mind another question now, Cal? Okay, so people are asking about handling divorce agreements in the private, you know, um, even, for example, should a should people get a marriage license in the first place? I think I know the answer to that one. Um, how, you know, birth certificates should should children get one? Um, they're going to they're, they're going to push on you for the birth certificate. Uh, so you got to, you know, you got to take some some harassment for lack of a better word. The whole marriage license thing, I never got married again, but um, I did talk to a couple of pastors that I knew, um, you know, asking them if, if I was to get married again, would you do it without the license? And I'll tell you something about that license. Anybody that has a family Bible, if you open just like the first few pages, you'll see, um, like where you can put your family tree, your births, um, deaths, and there's one for marriage. And guess what? It looks identical to the government one, except doesn't have government on it. Has the exact same stuff in there. The groom signs, the bride signs, the pastor signs, and the witnesses sign. That's all you need. It's a legal document. The pastors have been trained to um to and and here's how here's the wording that i the, 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 in british columbia 
the pastors are required to ask if you have a license. And that, when the way it's written, it's you, the thought comes, I have to get the license from them. No, it says they have to ask if you have a license. And again, if you're asking, the answer could be no. But we always think, oh, they have to have a license. But no, you're, supposed, you're required to ask. But if there's not one, there is no consequence or nothing written about that. So we just jump to conclusions. And even the birth certificate thing, here in BC, the wording is, um, you must register your child on form blah, blah, blah. And if you understand English, you know, and I, I didn't really like English in high school, but because of all this law stuff, I started to dissect sentences. That should actually be two sentences because the must could go to the form, not the registering. So they should have said must twice or two sentences so that you, you must register your children. You must register your children on form, blah, blah, blah. But when you put it together, the must could go to the form. If you're going to register your ch child, you must put it on that form. And this is, the, this is some of the word magic that they do. So the Bible is um, still recognized, especially in the United States. I know somebody who got a um, passport for their child. It took him a long time, um, but he got a passport for, for his child so that she could come to Canada from the United States um, without a birth certificate based on the Bible because it was written in there. So whenever I go to a wedding, I always my gift is always a family Bible, and then I usually go around to the uh, the groomsmen and the, and the bride, um, whatever they're called, and to get the pastor to sign it. And um, so they have a, you know, a biblical record of their, of their marriage, as well as the thing that they sign. But Amazing. yeah, so if you can get, if you can avoid the, the government registration of your marriage and the license, and the license, again, if you look up the, the word license, it means the ability to do something that is illegal. So they make it like, you can't do that, but I'll give you a, I'll give you a special permission to do this. And um, so if you can avoid that, you will have, they would have a hard time dragging you into court because they're not, they're not a party to that. It's, it's outside of their scope. And, they, and they've got statutes around common law marriages and all that. But again, you know, if, if you're, if you really know what you're doing, uh, they would have a hard time with it. So that's the scoop on that. And what was the other part of the question? Uh, just about like marriage in the, in the private. The, yeah. uh, and I was curious, if once, once your marriage is legal through that Bible and they're wondering which Bible, if there's a specific family Bible, no, no. no. Uh, then if, some, if, the, if the, one of the couple wanted to divorce, could they go and get a lawyer then? Is, would, would everything still remain the same as per the, the license legal agreement? Or would there be a difference there? Yeah, you can, you can have prenuptial agreements. I mean, right. everybody thinks, oh, it's all about money, but it can be about anything, really. It's, it's just an agreement between two parties. And as long as there's witnesses, and especially if you can get it notarized with witnesses, it's a binding contract. That's all it is. That the state cannot interfere with. 
can't deal with a contract, a private contract. And if you say it's private, they can't even look at it. Right, right. But would that still allow, say, the, the mum or the dad to go get a lawyer to enter it, to, to um, dispute that private contract? Or would that be a breach? Well, you could write that right in. There you go. Yeah. $10 million joinder fee. So yeah, you can, you can write anything into a contract as long as the parties agree, that's the contract. And you can, my, my ex-wife, she, um, she sold her condo and wanted to buy a new one. And, and um, the bank wanted to make sure that I didn't have any access to it. So they wanted another um, written financial agreement. And I said, yeah, I'll sign it. So she got a, a template and there was, a, it, you know what it said in the template? That this contract cannot be taken into a provincial court. Hmm. Right in the template. That, that, and it says that acts don't apply. Perfect. If you really understand contracts, you know, there's, there's a legal maxim contract. You can interpret it. Contract makes the law or contract supersedes the law. A private contract you can literally say, I have a private contract and I would be in breach if I even say anything more about it, including what you are trying to get me to, to reveal here. Right, which is in, in my mind why they go to such great extent to, to keep you in the public, even, even where it seems like the pastor is requiring the license, but just is asking for it. Yes. So it's a lot of trickery to get so that they, they can get jurisdiction. They can't deal with anything that's in the private and a private agreement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, if you just live common law with no written agreement, you know, there's an implied contract there, but you know, it's a lot harder to deal with than something that is signed, witnessed and notarized. There you go.